I spent my college days throwing perfect passes and trash-talking BYU. And I spent my college career smashing Utah Utes' faces into the mud. I'm Jason Buck. And I'm Scott Mitchell. After our careers in the NFL, we still talk trash. But mostly to each other on our podcast, Rivals. We talk all things football, college, and NFL. A little bit about life and growing up rivals. Download it each week wherever you get your podcasts or on the KSL Sports app. Go Cougs! And go Utes! I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. Today on the show, I've got Cameron Dayton. Yeah, this is before people started bandying around the word transmedia, which I think it's way overused these days now uh, by a lot of people who either don't know what it means or uh, don't know how to do it properly. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Cameron, thanks for making time. Thank you. So um, tell us a bit about uh, your cool job. (laughs) Well, I'm currently creative director at Sledgehammer Games. They're a a partner with uh, Activision, and I'm working on the next Call of Duty game. And and for people who... Um, are not familiar with that dynasty can you can you give people a bit of a scope you know maybe people who aren't video gamers to understand just like what what a dominant (laughs) title that is in the video game world oh yeah Uh, call of duty is one of the the biggest titles in the industry and it's uh it's uh known uh internationally um as as a best-selling game title and, and has been so uh for for years now and uh it's it's a title that uh, that Activision now divides out between three different partner studios: uh, Infinity Ward, Treyarch, and Sledgehammer, the studio I'm with. And uh, every year, it's uh, it's a new uh, adventure in some sort of a military context, and and uh, duty and uh, the you know military vision plays a big role in, in what's happening. But you know, uh, uh, one year will be. You know, uh, a war from the past. Another year will be uh, current uh, or, or similar to current day uh, warfare. And we've even had recently some very futuristic uh, spins through uh, what war might be like in, in the decades to come. Yeah, isn't it like, I don't know, correct me here. I want to say there's like 14 games or something since 2003 yeah, in this yeah. dynasty. Yeah, and, uh, and they've all gone in very interesting directions and all had their following. The, uh, the, the next one that I'm working on, which will be available this fall, is a return to uh, the, the kind of spirit and uh, uh, goals of the uh, very first Call of Duty game. We're going back to World War II. In fact, that's the, the name of the game is the uh, extravagant Call of Duty World War II. And uh, the, uh, <laughs> the game is going to uh, take us through some of the more interesting parts of... Um, you know, the battles in, in the European theater. Uh, there's a, a very uh, vibrant multiplayer aspect to the game. And then there's the, uh, what has become a very uh, popular uh, mode to the game of um, 
uh, it's a zombies game where waves of endless zombies come at you, and you it's called the co-op version of the game where you um, uh, team up with other friends. And sorry, that truck just drove by there. Were you able to hear me? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Okay. Um, and uh, I've been focused on the uh, on the zombies mode, which has been a lot of fun. Is that <laughs> taking this all within the World War II context, and uh, how does how does horror work in that mode, and how does uh, does that play into um, what's going on in you know in in, in the greater game? So uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and we're seeing an enormous fan response. People are uh, very excited to get back to a game they remember playing you know ten years ago. A lot of people have have dropped off in the intervening years, and uh, we're, we're predicting very big things for this game. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, as you and I have known each other over the years, I, I think I told you, you know, my brother and I, as as little guys, we uh, oh, our mom brought home a box full of Atari games from some <laughs> some uh, garage sale she'd been at, and that was what ah. our Saturday mornings were doing, right? And then as teenagers, we saved up and bought a Sega Genesis, and we're playing our friend Super NES, right? But yeah. video games were always kind of this like side thing for teenage boys and that's it. And kind of this side thing where now, I mean, it is a, a, a significant revenue source in the entertainment world. How have you seen the shift of, of the role of video games in society during your career? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, my, my original intent was, was definitely not to get into video games. I didn't even, I didn't even think that was a, was a, a job. You know, I, I assumed whoever did it, did it on the side of their, you know, their, their other real job. Um, I mean, I was, <laughs> I, I was headed to med school. I was in the pre-med program and had all my, my chem, my O-chem, my physics uh, knocked out of the way uh, before shifting over to animation. And it just became more obvious to me that, that games were turning into uh, something more than just a way to waste your time, something more than just a, uh, an entertaining thing to do when you had nothing else going on. Uh, I started seeing more powerful stories being told. And when you see a, a story uh, being told where where your audience is the protagonist, that invites so many uh, powerful uh, uh, events to take place because because all of a sudden the audience gets to think, well, what decision would I make? What decision did I make when confronted, you know, with this choice? Um, and and you know the the numbers, the industry's growth. Have shown that this it's definitely a, a powerful way of uh, of entertaining and, and sharing a story. You know, uh, the uh, even even ten years ago, the industry was starting to nudge past uh, the film industry, and and now to the tune of almost twenty billion dollars more uh, this quarter than than the uh, the film industry. It's, so it's uh, it's it's big, and uh, it what it what it means is uh, there is a need. In our culture, for people to to explore with their imaginations, to feel like they can be someone else or experience something that they, they can't normally do there, and I think it uh, it allows us to ask interesting questions and put ourselves in other people's shoes um, in in a way that hadn't really been possible before. Yeah, well, I mean, I was looking at the 2016 numbers, and you had you know a couple billion dollars of accessories and. Not quite four yeah. billion dollars of hardware, but really the story is twenty five billion dollars worth of content, you know. Yeah, and the story yeah. is really driving this, right? A thirty yeah. billion dollar industry now. Um, you are a writer at heart. I feel like. Um, why don't you talk just for a minute about, um, you know, how you and I met and and uh, your previous work with 
Orson Card and you know Writer of Ender's Game and that kind of stuff and the, the, right. the story approach to the video game world. Okay, well, um, we uh, I, I was part of a small studio that did animation. We did it for video games, and uh, the the studio was called Glyphics, and we uh, did the uh, the little movies that would happen after a level was won. You know, and it was a lot of fun. You know, uh, taking these worlds that the game developers had had built and uh, bringing them to life with the uh, the these, these movies. But uh, after a while, I sat with uh, some of the other uh, people who worked there with me and said, you know what? We've got stories that we would love to tell, and we've got some ideas about how to tell them. What if we put together a game design studio on our own? You know, I think we've we've actually got all the manpower here that's that's needed to do this. And you know, we were young and ambitious, and maybe a little bit dumb. And and so, uh, one of the first things we did was uh, set out. This was back in oh uh, two thousand two thousand one. We uh, we we put together a game idea. We thought it was amazing. It was. Uh, you know, Star Wars meets Lord of the Rings. I mean, we were we were aiming at everything, man. You know, um, and so we said, well, if we really have somebody write this uh, with us, uh, let's uh, let's see who we can get to uh, join us from from the biggest ranks ever. You know, why not shoot for the stars? So uh, we'd all just reading Ender's Game, loved that that book, and so sent a letter off to uh, to Scott Card to uh, see if he'd he'd uh, be interested in this. And, you know, we were not a studio that had a lot of clout or any big titles under our belt. But uh, for some reason, uh, something in the story pitch that we put together struck a chord with, uh, with Scott, and he replied back. He actually got back to us um, and was interested, and he uh, flew out to our little studio in, uh, in Provo, Utah, and um, uh, we got writing, and, and we kind of jammed on some of the story and creative ideas for a game that was called Advent Rising. It came out on the Xbox, and... Uh, there was a lot, a lot of excitement about it. It was a, a very ambitious title for a new little studio. But one of the, one of the most exciting things for me about putting this, this together was, I and mean, we were a tiny studio. There were there were uh, six of us, you know, initially putting all of this together. Um, and uh, Scott got out and started writing the, uh, the script for the game. And he gets to, uh, uh, you know, we had 20 levels in the game. He gets to level two, and his agent calls. And says, Scott, we've got a, a novel that all of a sudden the contract come, uh, come up and we've got to pull you back off it. And so we had a deadline coming up. We had a video recording session in L.A. set up. And so um, everybody looked around. I was the only one who'd, who'd you know, been published before. I had a short story published years ago. And so they said, Cameron, can you pick us up? So I had to try and replicate Scott's tone and, uh, and do levels 3 through 20 and uh, and fill those in and uh, and and kind of carry the Scott Card torch in the way the type of narrative he was he was giving and uh, uh, we're able to put that out and uh, and and he paid me a, probably one of the highest compliments he could have paid me he said you know Cameron I uh, was reading through this and had a hard time telling where my writing ended and yours began so that was pretty cool and, and you know so right off the bat I got a got a writing credit with a New York Times bestseller. Um, and a Hugo, an award-winning uh, science fiction author, and so, uh, so from there, the uh, the game hit some snags. There were some issues with, uh, you know, we were with a small publisher who hadn't really uh, been able to do the bug testing we needed, and uh, so there were there were some some uh, some bugs and some some things that we didn't like about how it had come about. So we kind of reformed uh, the the original developers of uh, Advent Rising into a group called Chair Entertainment. 
and uh, we, uh, we we had just as lofty goals. We were going to uh, you know try and put out uh, games that were tied to storytelling, and this gets to to the writing part you had mentioned earlier. Um, hey, can I just have... interrupt you for one minute? Do you yeah, know sure. That we... So I was super stoked when when you talked about me of helping out with that. Did you know uh-huh. we made it onto Wikipedia for like what? it was under development that the Ender's Game video game was under development by Chair. I, I didn't know that actually. Yeah, <laughs> I just saw that. Sorry, yeah. keep keep no, going. So so fine. Um, sorry, keep going. Okay, so um, let's see where we're. So yeah, so this uh, Chair Entertainment, we we liked the um. Uh, the idea of creating a studio that could create a game, but it could also handle the, the publishing of a novel, short stories, comic books, TV, movies. But the, uh, the studio would have creative control over all of those things so that they felt consistent. And it, the, uh, this is before people started bandying around the word transmedia, which I think it's way overused these days and now uh, by a lot of people who either don't know what it means or uh, don't know how to <laughs> do it properly. But, uh, but it was really what we were trying to do, was a studio that uh, kept that, uh, that, that concept rolling. And so we, uh, we had an idea that we pushed with, uh, uh, with Scott Card. He wrote a, a book called Empire, and we uh, were going to push, uh, we, we got the, uh, the movie rights purchased. We got uh, a comic uh, uh, deal going, and we just couldn't get anybody to bite on the, the game idea. And so uh, we... Uh, you know, kind of uh, looked back and forth on how to do this. We want to do a big AAA game. And uh, in the end, uh, the, uh, you know, with the, the remaining assets and uh, uh, resources we have, we realized, you know, this new thing that everybody's excited about are these little downloadable games on Xbox Live. These games, that they don't print them on a disc. They don't, you know, sell them at Walmart. They're just available online. And, uh, and so why don't we take our idea and put it into a, a simpler type of game and make it available as an Xbox Live download. So that game was called Shadow Complex, and uh, it was our first foray into this transmedia where the novel tied into it. Uh, the game, the game uh, won some awards, was, was pretty popular, and uh, we, it kind of gave us a taste for making these smaller, more compact games. Uh, we did a, a, a couple more that were, were kind of in that category and and the entire time had been using the unreal engine which is a fantastic tool created by a studio called and epic games and they made of course the the unreal game uh, that everybody loved back in the 90s um well can approached- i pause you for one second yeah. because you know i think there are you brought up a comment and it, i think it's one of the things when we first became friends that was most interesting to me um in the industry a lot of people talk about transmedia but i don't know that everybody else understands this concept can you right. talk about just you know the idea of a story is key and being able to talk about it you know continue a story across multiple platforms and have them interact with each other can you explain yes. just what that definition is yeah well i think i mean the easiest way to uh to describe this is to deal with the frustration i think we probably all had as kids um when there was a movie that you watched that you loved or a cartoon that you watched and then you found out that, oh, geez, the, the McDonald's Happy Meal uh, this month has a little book that comes with it or has a toy that comes with it or a, a comic book that comes with it. And you would read that or see that, um, and it would feel like it wasn't even part of the same story. Like, obviously, it had been shipped off to uh, 
some other little, you know, art house that was completely disconnected, and and uh, you could tell that the uh, the person who wrote it uh, was less familiar with the uh, with the franchise than you were as somebody who loves it, um, you know, and uh, you kind of expected this world that you as a child would place your imagination in for it to exist in in some imagined creative place, and so all of the uh, the the uh, the elements of it, all of the, the branches of it, all the media that represented it, should have that same feel, right? Um, and uh, I, I really think that it was the, the sort of thing that um, Star Wars gave us the very first sense of, you know, because you felt like if you watched a Star Wars movie or watched a Star Wars cartoon or got the, the Star Wars Happy Meal, R2-D2 was always R2-D2, and the Force was the Force. And, you know, you if, uh, if you talked about a Kessel Run in one of these uh, <laughs> uh, stories, it would be the same thing they were talking about in the other one. Yeah. And uh, for, for us, it seems so the right way to do things seems so simple. Well, of course, these imaginary worlds have to be quote unquote real or true to somebody who's controlling these things. But, but sadly, um, a lot of franchises just didn't and don't take that seriously. So the well, idea of transmedia is, is this, that, that your core story, your core narrative um, is connected and exists from a comic book to a novel to a TV series to a movie yeah. uh, to a video game, and uh, and and the best, most interesting way of doing that is having them all lean into each other. Yeah. It, what I mean is, you know, if your if your video game refers to some you know interplanetary rebellion, you know, uh, where the uh, you know Flurgians were attacked, <laughs> well, you know, on your in your comic book. There's an actual Flurgy in there, and he's got some scars, and he says, "Oh, those were those were some bad days." And you know, the the Schmozians were were just unforgivable. So, and then oh, in the TV series, there's a Schmozian who's actually going against type, and he's actually a nice guy. So I the, so so <laughs> I, I just love awesome that. science fiction words, but that's <laughs> that's the idea behind transmedia is that this uh, imaginary world. Uh, exists and is consistent across platforms and is self-referential across platforms. Well, and I want to talk about this because, well, for starters, it's really funny for me. You know, my last my last episode we just recorded this morning is with a guy from Boeing. We're talking about, you know, uh, lean <laughs> lean tools uh-huh. for manufacturing, <laughs> right? And, right? And on this episode, we use the word schmergians in a in a sentence. <laughs> so I, I really like that. But, yeah, you'll um, find both conversations with me involve made-up words. Right, and... right. But <laughs> no, I think it's what's so attractive. I mean, when you guys recruited me to come explore this idea of, you know, making the Ender's Game video right. game after the Harrison Ford movie had come out and, and you know, Scott Card had given you the rights to it and stuff. Uh, to me, I was fascinated with what you had done at, you know, arguably the biggest, maybe it's not, but it seems like the biggest video game in the world, War- World of Warcraft and the Twitter and the, like that you were actually doing this. It wasn't just an idea. Can you talk right. about kind of like breaking some new ground and trying stuff out there? Right, right. Well, um, you know, this actually is, is a good lean-in towards uh, towards Blizzard. I'll, I'll kind of tie this into to where we were with our story. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so after, with, it, with, um, with Chair, we made a game called Infinity Blade that was a big mobile game, a big hit. It was best-selling game 2007 on the iPhone. Um, that got some attention with some of the bigger studios, and I started talking with uh, Chris Metzen over at Blizzard. And uh, they brought me on. I was initially on the, uh, the original Titan team, which was sort of, sort of the precursor to Overwatch. Um, and shifted over to the creative development team where I started doing a lot of this transmedia. So that was really where I first cut my teeth. And it was a great place to practice this because you've got 
legions of loyal fans who are just hungry for anything that, that you uh, that you deliver them, you know. And so we have this, uh, uh, you know, one of one of the biggest games that, on the studio makes is a game called Starcraft, and uh, they had a uh, they just come out with Starcraft Two with Wings of Liberty, um, and the next one uh, was was going to be sort of a sequel to that focusing on the Zerg. Um, which is a, a more kind of insect-like alien alien race, and they wanted to make sure that uh, the audience was engaged because they'd seen a, a fall off in people interested in buying the novels and people interested in uh, the, you know reading the stories on the web. And uh, the uh, my my proposal was that we we hadn't been involving the audiences as, as much as we could in the story and and making it an active thing. So I created a, a transmedia campaign. For, uh, for StarCraft II, Heart of the Swarm is the name of the expansion, uh, where uh, we, uh, I created uh, several layers to this thing. Um, there, was, there was a Twitter narrative being told between several uh, characters that were on this uh, satellite planet doing research for the Dominion government. Uh, there were short stories being released on the website that synced up with those elements. Um, and uh, it was all protected behind a, a password that uh, the, the audience had to get in and actually hack into the hexadecimal coding on the front page to find. It wasn't a story we were just dumping on their laps. It was something that we were um, forcing them to hunt down. And, uh, and the minute your audience is trying to find a password, the minute they're, they're trying to hunt down your story, they're already engaged. They're already playing your game, essentially, before they've even you know, uh, picked up the disc. And so... They, they, the, uh, the, the campaign was a huge success. You know, we, we didn't just double or triple the eyes on our, uh, on our stories and books. They went up uh, 12,000%. It was an enormous response and uh, uh, helped Blizzard to uh, give more focus to that transmedia stuff. And you'll see some of those elements in what's being done with uh, Overwatch today. Well, so, uh, and I want to pause you there for one second because yeah. tons of people listening today are not in the entertainment industry, right? right? But but is there a lesson here? You know, is there an is there an opportunity to think what can be extracted from my you know maybe slightly more boring industry than <laughs> inventing video games? But right. you know, I mean, you did. I mean, you're in a bureaucracy. Blizzard's got five thousand staff. They got a billion dollar billion dollars of revenue. One point one billion dollar revenue company. Right. This is not right. two dudes right. in your garage. Like you had to con you had to work out the bureaucracy. You had to get approvals. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. From like a customer service standpoint, from a customer engagement standpoint, from a, you know, our customers, we actually want to feel like they're in the family instead of just those people who buy our stuff. Uh -huh. To me, I feel like there are lessons for other industries to think about, you know, can we have deeper engagement where we're inventing something that other people haven't done to have right. our customers feel like a part of our stuff instead of just the marks you know, just the people who are trying yeah. to get to buy it. Yes, and I, I think the key there is that is that involvement. The technology today allows us to get talk directly to our customers, allows us to to react to them. And uh, you know, you hear the term agile a lot. I know you and I talked about uh, sure. agile business and what that means on a uh, yeah, you know, on a on a business sense of being able to to, to turn on a dime according to the. Uh, you know, as you learn more about the tastes and wants and needs of your audience, but that's also true on the narrative sense, on 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 the uh, the the stories you tell. You know, I, I it's it's very much like 
uh, the, the oldest form of entertainment humanity has ever had, right? Which was telling a story to a group of people gathered around a campfire, you know? Uh, and if you've ever told ghost stories with the scouts or anything like that, you'll, you'll notice as you, as you get into the story, uh, certain elements will make them lean forward and will make their eyes go wide. And uh, you'll see an excitement and, and you'll see smiles or frowns. And, and without even thinking about it, you adjust and adapt your story as you go to fit that audience. It's, it's something we naturally do. So uh, an example, this Twitter story that we were telling to tens of thousands of fans out there who are following these characters. I, I gathered my entire uh, creative dev team around, and each of them had just, a character. Just to interrupt there, so if people yeah. don't understand what you're saying, you guys are okay. basically like pretending to be an orc and like have a, twi- yeah. a fake Twitter <laughs> account as... Uh, right. Like yeah. a fake, so let me, a real yeah, I'll, Twitter I'll, account I'll for more, a fake character. Yes, exactly. It, it's really, uh, you know, and rather than orcs, this is science fiction. So we were, Sorry. you know, sharp yeah. uh, clawed aliens and, uh, and, and, you know, telepaths, that sort of thing. But <laughs> the idea is the same. Uh, we, uh, we, we took on certain names and, uh, and we, we described, okay, your character is going to be this. Like my, my buddy Robert, Robert Brooks, one of the great writers on the team. You are going to be an engineer, a StarCraft engineer, and you, uh, you can talk about lifting the hood up on these ships, and you are uh, a burly, no-nonsense guy. And then, you know, my, my, my buddy, uh, Matt Burns, you are going to play, uh, you know, the scientific character who cares about nothing more than understanding the psychology of aliens, and so on and so forth with each of these characters. Um, and, uh, they, uh, and so we would get online, and we would tell a story. The, the idea was this. Twitter was our character's way of radioing to each other, kind of our, our CB radios. And so, um, so I would, you know, get on acting as one character and say, hey, we're having a leak in the duct on the, uh, you know, on the, the central condition, air conditioning shaft here. Can we send maintenance over there? And so some very, like, simple maintenance thing just to allow our audience to get into the mode and, and to follow us. Um, and it was amazing, Jess. We saw... You know, an initial, uh, you know, five, ten thousand followers jump up to twenty, fifty thousand followers as they realized, well, these guys are telling a story to us live, and uh, and the best part, Jess, was that as we told this story, we could read the responses of the audience. Now, now, just like when you're, uh, you know, you're you're doing a live play, you don't necessarily talk back to the audience. I mean, I guess you're a stand-up comedian with a heckler, but in this case, we didn't respond directly to what the audience said. But we read how they were liking certain characters. And in fact, there was one character that we had planned to die off. And one of these, the, as the aliens burst out and tried to escape, uh, one of the characters was going to die. And we noticed this character didn't have a whole lot of interest. Like, like, I had hoped it would be a funny character that people were really into. And it just kept falling flat. Uh, however, Robert Brooks' character, this uh, no-nonsense uh, engineer guy, he was... He was he he kind of become a uh, out of the blue a big fan favorite, and so we we did a little bit of a George Martin here, and we said, you know what, let's switch, let's kill him off instead, and see what the fans do, and uh, and as we built towards this, and he gave his life, he locked himself in a room and and let off a grenade so that the rest of the crew could escape. It was a beautiful heroic death, and the uh, <laughs> Twitter went wild. No, why did he do this? And there was you know weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and. Um, and it was it was so much fun, and 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 the best part was that our audience felt like we as storytellers and creators weren't off in some ivory tower somewhere, you know, uh, dictating what would be cool. 
but we were talking with them, and we were on the ground telling them stories. Um, and it was a wild success, and it was the sort of thing I've tried to pattern um, yeah. any of the projects I've worked on since then in in a similar vein, which you know leads us to the uh, the the Ender's Game project that well, you and I worked on. And let's do this. This is a good place to end for part one, and right. and and it will have it be the cliffhanger. Everybody should listen into part two of <laughs> all this all this meaningless fun. How does this turn into twelve? 12,000% increase and and what does that mean financially and what can the rest of us who don't have jobs as cool as Cameron you know what can we steal from this for our career so please tune into our, our next episode and, and we'll get the secrets out of Cameron here so thanks well that's it for the episode one other thing I wanted to tell you about if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back Ken Free and Trent Mano. I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Get to Old Navy for star-spangled style. Right now, everything's on sale, up to 60% off. That's right, get everything from tees, shorts, dresses, and swim, all at 60% off. Now till July 7th at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid through 7-7, select styles only.